Greetings, mortals. Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. I'm Al. I'm Nathan. Join us for a deep dive into some of history's most fascinating characters who live dangerously beautiful lives and whose legacies haunt us today. And on this episode today, guys, we have our friend Mike Bash, fellow Emerson alumni, who is a featured actor on the show Shameless and The Oval by Tyler Perry, uh, in addition to many other roles. He has been so nice enough to support the podcast from the very beginning, and he's wanted to come on, you know, since day one. And we've got him here today, studied up on Sam Cooke to do Who Wants to Be a Millionaire Sam Cooke Edition. You know, before we jump in, guys... Nathan, what are you drinking today? I know you just told me like eight seconds ago when we weren't live, but that's all what are you right. Drinking? I'll do it again. Look at this can. It's called Zero Meridian. It's a country lager from the brewery I work at. It's pretty tasty. What about you, Al? What are you drinking? I am uh, simultaneously in one fist having mm. another hard kombucha because um, that's who I am. I'm going to stop drinking this uh, lest we get a sponsorship on the pod but then we're also having a delicious treat of stella atwasidra oh wow have you ever had this before no i've only had the regular it's crisp it's fruity it is hard to find sometimes you know you can find it at the most random places in not populated areas and then not at all at the huge market basket sometimes and it's really annoying so what's happening in 1931 the year our subject sam cook was born In 1931, Albert Einstein began doing his research in California with Edwin Hubble. Thomas Edison submitted his last patent application. Hawke's Bay earthquake destroyed a lot of the New Zealand cities of Napier and Hastings. And I don't think that we in the uh, year rundown have mentioned New Zealand. So I wanted to give them a shout out today. The original Dracula came out starring Bela Lugosi. And there's a really great episode of Mysteries and Scandals on him if you ever want to watch that. It's very funny. Uh, the Star Spangled Banner is officially adopted as the United States national anthem. I didn't know that. Yeah, that I didn't seems know that it so much more recent than I expected. Porsche was founded in Stuttgart. Salvador Dali's The Persistence of Memory went on display for the first time in Paris. And the Millennialist Bible Study Movement changed its name to the Jehovah Witnesses at a meeting in Columbus, Ohio. And the Chinese Soviet Republic is proclaimed by Mao Zedong. Also, we can't forget... St. Patrick's Day, Nevada legalizes gambling. Yes, cannot forget that. Um, you know, beginning of an era. Never checked out Vegas, but maybe someday. When was prohibition repealed? Does the legalization of then. gambling in Nevada coincide with mm-hmm. prohibition ending? I can't believe that the littest decade in American history there was no booze. 1933. So, this is even before you could drink in Vegas. Gamble without But they booze? drank in Vegas. No, they drank in... I mean, they had, I bet, a Yeah, while. we've all seen Casino. So yeah, so, Nathan, take it away and tell us about Sam Cooke's early life and his time with the Soulsters. So he's born Samuel Cooke, without the E, uh, at, the, at the end of Cooke there, in Clarksdale, Mississippi, on January 22nd. That's my mom's birthday in 1931. Uh, very great year we've, we've covered. His father was a minister, so he spent a lot of time in the church and was surrounded by its music. His father uh, eventually moves them up to Chicago, 
where he has his own church in Bronzeville, which is a hub for many successful black businesses as well as many other churches. And Sam and a lot of his siblings uh, start performing at a very young age, uh, and they would go to these other churches in Bronzeville and around the Midwest in general. Once he became a teenager, he formed a group called the Highway QCs, and he claims that the biggest inspiration in that music was the gospel group, the Soul Stirrers. And then, lo and behold, when he's 17, just out of high school, he gets his big break. He joins that same group, the Soul Stirrers, filling the shoes of R.H. Harris, who was their lead singer. Out on tour with the Soul Stirrers, he gets to work on his voice in a much different environment than the church, especially the crowds that would be coming to the Soul Stirrers performances that would come just to see Sam. In 1953, he meets Lloyd Price in Specialty Records' office, celebrating the release of Lloyd's number one hit, Lottie Miss Caudy. And during this time, Sam is going to a lot of rock and roll shows. And he's still on tour with the Soul Stirrers, but at night, he's going to all these shows. And Lloyd Price uh, points out the similarities between the crowds the Soul Stirrers were playing and then the much larger 1,700 people Price would be singing to in the Apollo. Wanted to, I actually wanted to um, interject there. And I yeah. remember seeing that um, when Sam was performing at church, they would say he wasn't the, the best singer per se, but they noticed that everyone would come forward when Sam was performing, like regardless of him being the best singer or not, he just had such charisma and he was just so attractive to both like men and women because of his charisma, how he looked, how he carried himself on the stage. So that was definitely also how he got noticed by the Soulsters. He definitely was a very captivating performer. Uh, nevertheless, he couldn't make this switch from uh, gospel music, which was very much, uh, you know, believed to be at the time to uh, singing the devil's music. He can't sing rock and roll. And Kevin Powell notes in this documentary, The Two Killings of Sam Cooke, quote, we are told in the black church, either you're going to sing God's music or you're going to sing the devil's music. And there's a kind of guilt complex tied to that when you're like, I want to sing God's music, but the devil's music has me dancing and devil music can actually make me famous, end quote. So there's also this risk of not having this rock and roll career work out for Sam. And he knows that if that were to happen, he would not be able to rejoin the Soulsters. You can't just switch back again uh, after singing the devil's music. I think he could, though. I remember in the documentary I watched his father, you know, he was a preacher as well, and he gave him permission to sing. And I think that we are all, you know, people of our time and, yeah. you know, we we absorb the changing times. And I think that, you know, had Sam lived, he definitely would have uh, released subsequent Christian albums. I did see that the conversation with his dad, he just wanted to reach a wider audience and that music was the way to do it. Uh, he wanted to not just reach his community, not just reach the churches, but the world. Um, and eventually Sam does leave the Soul Stirrers after a successful six-year run on tour. In 1957, he's now started his solo career. And their influence is still felt all throughout his music. There's this song the Soul Stirrers did called Wonderful, and Sam takes that same melody, same syllables, and turns it into Lovable, released in February of 1957. The funny thing about this record, though, is it isn't released under the name Sam Cooke. Its credit is to Dale Cooke. And again, that's without the E at the end of the last name. 
And it's obviously Sam singing, uh, but some speculate that this was because he was afraid of the backlash of him leaving the Soulsters. Um, and again, the guilt that was coming with the devil's music. But eventually he comes to terms with the fact that he wants to make this music, he wants to make a career out of this, and he uses his real name, this time adding the E at the end of Cook. And the first song he releases under that name is You Send Me in September of that same year, 1957. From there, his career really takes off as the song charts number one in pop. Sam, when he changed his name to Cook with the E, he really saw this as a rebirth of himself. And it, what an amazing rebirth it was. Uh, Sam had over 30 top 40 hits during his career, and he was also an ardent supporter of the civil rights movement. In 1958, Sam Cook performed at the famed Cavalcade of Jazz concert produced by Leon Heflin Sr., held at the Shrine Auditorium on August Third, The other headliners were famed uh, other performers like Little Willie John, Ray Charles, and Sammy Davis Jr. was there to crown the winner of Miss Cavalcade of Jazz Beauty Contest. The event featured four of the top prominent disc jockeys in Los Angeles. So if you got a gig here, basically everyone that had the reins of like, what are we putting on the media and into the news, they were there and they were absorbing and keeping an eye out for people who were going to, you know, make the airwaves. Cook signed with RCA Victor record label in 1960, having been offered a hundred thousand dollars, which is about, you know, a million dollars, 2021 money by the label producers, Hugo and Luigi. One of his first RCA Victor singles was chain gang, which reached number two on the billboard pop chart. So of course you can see Sam's crossover success really pop in here. Like most R and B artists of his time, which I think is really interesting. And, you know, contrast with i think our youth in music but has been revived you know for today's artists is that he only released he released a lot of singles as opposed to releasing full-length albums he released a lot of singles like cardi b where the album at cardi the 30 singles i meant that he had in the top 40 hits those were just on the pop charts that doesn't even include all of the r&b top 40 hits that he had he was a prolific songwriter. He actually wrote most of the music he recorded. He also had some hand in overseeing how the songs were composed as well, not just written. And in spite of releasing mostly singles, he released a well-received blues inflected LP in 1963 called Nightbeat. And his most acclaimed studio album was Ain't That Good News, which had five singles in 1964. Uh, what really stands out to me is, you know, the amount of mainstream late night TV shows he's on, you know, like Dick Clark. To me, that's really like a big push for integration, especially since it's the 1950s. You know, it's pre-Civil Rights Act. So having that on, you know, there's only like three channels, allegedly. I wasn't there, but there are only three channels. If you've got the TV on, you either turn it off or you see integration. So I think that that's really powerful that, you know, they were allies using their um, doing, you know, doing the bare minimum uh, in integrating and, you know, not just having, you know, the Rolling Stones on or something performing the music by the black people who had originally written it. <laughs> they probably did have Elvis on their show too, but it's the bare minimum. You're right. You know, we could really contrast that with you, Jimmy Fallon having Addison Rae on to do the TikToks by Black People. Oh my people. God. Discussion point, why suits on stage? I don't like it. I mean, it is a weird time because it's like, 
rock and roll has just started. So the very performative aspect of it hasn't really taken off yet. I feel like suits that that's what he was wearing in church, I bet. So probably yeah, felt okay. like a familiar thing to be wearing. But you, know, you know, the Beatles are in suits, the monkeys are in suits. Little Richard's in a suit. So I I never understood that about this time in music history, but your yeah. rationale makes sense. Fashion got a little bit more creative as the decades, I think, went on. And I just don't think that, uh, you know, at least when he was first starting his solo career, that that was even thought about. Because, oh, maybe maybe you only wear one suit. You take one suit with you to every venue so you don't have to pack heavy. Definitely could save on uh, baggage going on tour. Because I can't imagine seeing Travis Scott today in a suit on stage singing me the songs. He'd look dapper, but yeah. It's a, it's a very distinct look that I think Sam Cooke wore very well, albeit, you know, pretty traditional. So everyone, if you could please welcome Mike Bash to the show for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Welcome to the podcast, our friend, fellow Emerson alum, Mike Bash. Do you want to introduce yourself to the people, the fans of Fatal Fortunes? Uh, I'm Mike Bash. <laughs> awesome. In case you guys don't know Mike, well, Mike was my theater teacher when I was 11 years old. And I remember, you know, yeah. just living my life. My dad would be like, wait, why are you commenting on Mike Bash's Facebook post? How do you know this guy <laughs> who graduated from Emerson in like 08, dude? And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Small world, Dad. That's my buddy, actually. Um, and he's yours, too. One of the most formative teachers that I didn't have, if that makes sense. Because I never yeah. had him as a filmmaking teacher. and I never, But I worked with him a bunch. And he was one of the most formative people that I, I spoke to and that I took things from, from Emerson and just the Boston community. And uh, I remember when he was posting up photos of the, it's the, the lake house, I think? Yeah, the lake house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, yes. You go enjoy that because you've been in this work. You've been doing your thing forever and affecting students. I mean, being a teacher and especially nowadays, like it's sad how much we uh, don't appreciate teachers. And so, you know, I'm, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about your dad. But yeah, that theater class was you were 11. Jesus. Am I that old? I'm old. OK, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, full decade, full decade. But yeah. We have prepared a Who Wants to Be a Millionaire style Sam Cook quiz show for Mike. And our first question is, which one of these Sam Cook hits was not one of his own compositions? A, they're all his own compositions. Uh B, Sad Moon. C, Twist in the Night Away. And D, Bring It On Home to Me. Wait. Bring it on home to me. What was his first? So he was with the Soulsters, and then he moved up. And I feel like one of his folks from the Soulsters wrote something for him. But he's also a prolific songwriter. Is this do you the need first to read you the one? Answer? Yeah. Do you need us to read you the answer choices again? 
Okay, remember I told you I was like, I didn't have time as much as I'd like to prepare because it's, it's pilot season and everything. So uh, <laughs> this is where I knew I was going to be like, dang it. But I, I said, I'm going to take this as a learning experience. So um, what the heck? Let's go 50-50. Let me use my 50-50. Okay. Sad Moon or they are all his compositions? Oh, dang it. They're all his compositions. They're all his compositions. Yes. <laughs> I knew yeah. it. I was like, dang it. Yeah. Typically, Sam wrote a lot of his own music. Okay. Yeah. I was like, yeah, he was a prolific songwriter. So, okay. All right. What is Sam's complaint in his hit, Another Saturday Night? Is it A, I ain't got no home? B, I ain't got no money? C, I ain't got no buddy? Or D, I ain't got no place to go. I ain't got nobody to talk to. You got it. Yay! All right. That's two for two. All right. Awesome. <laughs> Sam launched his pop career with record label Keen. His first hit was released in 1957. What was it called? Wonderful World, You Send Me, Everyone Loves to Cha-Cha-Cha, Chain Gang. You Send Me. All right. Three for three. Boom! Although I use my 50-50, so I might be screwed here, but okay. <laughs> no, you got it. This next question, what was the New York City nightclub Cook frequently played at? Is it A, CBGB's, B, Studio 54, C, Copacabana, or D, Blue Note? Copacabana because he broke color barriers when he played there. Excellent. And uh, was, did he did he set the? I'm gonna get this wrong, but did he set the tone for Billy Holiday, or did did Billy Holiday set the tone for him? Mm, that's a good question. I, my gut says Billy Holiday set the tone. I, I think, think Billy Holiday Billie because Holiday she was arrested and, and the whole thing. And by that time, I think yeah, okay, all right. She's also a lot older than him, fifteen. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I was gonna say yeah. She was the first of many firsts. What was the title of the first posthumous album by Sam Cooke? Shook, Shake, Cook, You Send Me. Oh my god. Okay, his first album was called Sam Cooke. First so posthumous first, album. Yeah, so his first posthumous album, if it, his first album ever was Sam Cooke. So his, and Sam again? Shook, Shake, cook, you send me. Who would have been in charge of naming that? And what would the message have been that they wanted to send? It was one of two singles that were released. One was called Shake, and then the other was A Change Is Gonna Come. Um, And the person in charge of that was Alan Klein, who we talked about was... A okay. pretty shitty uh, manager for Sam. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was part of the reason for the drug use and everything. Um, shook, shake. Wait, you just gave me. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> shook, yeah. No, it's shake. Wait, it's shake. <laughs> And then I was like, wait, 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 I'm going to get this wrong. It was shake, okay. Yeah, no, I totally did give that away. Okay, so 
Shake was the first one. Then what happened? At, what came after that? Oh, that it was the live album at Harlem Square. They released in '85, but it was recorded in 1963. Um, they never released it until a couple decades later. That's right. Okay. Okay. What was the just for fun? What was the last one? Oh, oh the last uh, question or the last album? The last question. Yeah. So this last question is Sam Cooke was most recently portrayed by this Hamilton cast member. Was it A, Leslie Odom Jr., B, Lin-Manuel Miranda, C, David Diggs, or D, Christopher Jackson? Wait, One Night in Miami? Is that that what you're talking about? Oh, Yeah. yeah, that was, yeah. So wait, am I... Oh yeah, Leslie. Yeah, because he sang his freaking heart out. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The thing that that when you asked me to do that interests me about. Do you want to do Sam Cooke? And, and I, I was saying that at this time, like change is going to come. Is you know, it's it's easy to say like, oh, I'm going to put like the guilty verdict just came in, right? And yeah. it's easy to say like, I'm going to put that on and I'm going to blast it from the windows. And it's that's the change. And it's like, no, no, no. Sam was talking about a change that has been in process for four or 500 years. Like, and it's still to this day, continuing to be this huge, uh, this huge amount of work and this huge amount of uh, what's the Arthur Miller attention must be paid. Right. So attention must be paid. And I just feel like Sam cook today, especially is so fitting. Um, and yeah, I just I appreciate being on the on the show. Sam has two marriages in his lifetime. The first is to Dolores Elizabeth Milligan, a singer and dancer. Um, they married in 1953, although this marriage did not last long, as Sam did have an inability to say no to women. Apparently, in 1958, they agree to divorce um, after he's caught cheating, and that same year. Sam marries his second wife, Barbara Campbell. Unfortunately, one year later, Dolores is killed in a very tragic car accident, and it's famously noted that Sam pays for her funeral and Barbara stays by his side through it all. Sam and Barbara had three children, Linda, Tracy, and Vincent. Another very tragic part of Sam's life is that Vincent was lost at a young age of two years old um, when he drowned in the family swimming pool. Almost immediately after Vincent's passing, Sam went on tour, trying to mask out the pain of losing his youngest child. And um, in that same documentary I mentioned before, The Two Killings of Sam Cooke, they mentioned that that swimming pool was in his front yard. So I can't imagine having to pass that every single day um, as the place like you know where a very unfortunate accident happened. Must have been hard. Yeah, and uh, you know, a little side note on a swimming pool drownings those happened all the time back then because i remember there's not to put him on blast or anything but there was this kid that went to our school who's the youngest child of like famous mexican star anthony quinn and anthony quinn's like first child was born in 1947 also drowned in a pool was born 50 years before his youngest sibling who went to university with us well so what the fuck was up with swimming pools in yeah. the 40s, 50s, and 60s that all of these small children are dying? I mean, 
for most people, that must be their first swimming pool. So I can't imagine that people were telling like parents how to enforce safety measures. They're just like, cool, we made you a pool. It's your responsibility. And then you see what happens. I couldn't find much on Tracy, but Linda has a very difficult childhood, of course, with the death of her father later on, uh, but then also with her stepfather after that. Her mother remarries once Sam passes away, and he's um, Bobby Womack is this new uh, husband for Barbara, who was Sam's former guitarist. Bobby Womack is secretly abusing his stepdaughter, Linda, and when Barbara finds out, she holds a gun to his head, orders him to leave, and just graces his scalp when she fires a shot as he runs away. This does end the marriage, but Linda goes on to marry Bobby's brother, Cecil, and they go on to make a lot of music together. So Linda's still in the Womack family, so that that seems like a very complicated situation. Which seems very weird as opposed to the last character we did, Catherine of Aragon, where you saw all the terrible things that happen when you marry your husband's sibling. Yeah. It's noted that Sam actually had other children out of wedlock, possibly three. Um, And famously, Barbara had found out about one of these children and insisted that Sam pays for the child in an out-of-court settlement. So seems like Barbara was the boss carrying the gun making sure the money got paid. Um, definitely seemed like a good mother. So in 1961, Sam founded his record label. So Sam wasn't just satisfied with being a hit songwriter and performer. He wanted to venture into the business side, you know, how to keep black wealth, black wealth. And the meaning of SAR has been disputed. Uh, it has been listed as Sam and Alex records because uh, Alex was Cook's business and songwriting associate. It has also been interpreted as Sam, Alex, and Roy records. Roy being R.S. Crane, Sam Cook's mentor from the Soulsters. Who cares? Who cares where the name comes from? Something Sam said about starting a record label was that a piece of vinyl makes it or breaks it, regardless of if you're a white performer or a black performer, it's because of how that record sounds. Sam never released any of his own music under this label, but he worked with former soul stars, Sam's younger brother, you know, Bobby Wambach, like we just talked about, and other legends from that time. One notable release from SIR was the original version of It's All Over Now by the Valentinos, which would later be covered by the Rolling Stones. So, you know, they're another example of white artists taking black songs, reappropriating them for their own monetary gain. And what's really crazy is we'll talk about him later, but Alan Klein, dickhead. And you know what? I just learned, I just learned in torts class, you can't defame the dead. So um, not even allegedly a dickhead, dickhead, Alan Klein, he actually ended up owning most of Sam's body of work. So, and he managed the Rolling Stones as well. So he was very easily like, okay. Also the Beatles for a time. Like, he had his hand. He's a dirty piece of shit. Yep. So through Sam's label, he really wanted to help black artists who were struggling, you know, make sure that there were other people growing in the scene, not just him. And while working for himself, Sam recorded two songs, which were actually eventually released in 2001. They are Somewhere There Is a Girl and That's Heaven to Me. 
a subsidiary of Universal Music Distribution who, you know, you suck Universal Music Distribution because every single time I post a video on YouTube with my license in it, you still copyright claim my license and claim it's a different effing song. It's annoying, okay? A subsidiary of Universal Music Distribution, ABKCO, released a compilation of the work that SAR did in 1994, and the label unfortunately folded when Sam died. But, you know, I think labels and publishing houses in the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, they came up and fell down all the time. Yeah, it was. it seemed like a very sink or swim um industry even more so than it is today just because like nobody had even done it before at that point really like seriously it's almost like podcasting you know any idiot can do it for any amount of time that's us (laughs) sam's murder is a very complicated one that still leaves people asking questions to this day i honestly didn't even know that he was murdered before doing all this research watching the doc i had no idea what a tragic end on December 11th, 1964, Sam Cooke was shot to death at the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles, California. The events leading up to his death leave room for many conspiracies. Right before his death, his contract is renegotiated by Alan Klein, Cooke's manager at the time. They come up with a concept where they start a new record company separate from RCA, and then they lease that work out to RCA. The company was named Tracy Limited named after his middle daughter. Unbeknownst to Sam, though, Alan Klein is a garbage person, as we talked about before. He makes himself the president of Sam's own company. So Sam is an employee of Alan Klein now. Sam is pretty pissed uh, when he finds out, and he decides he's telling everyone that he's going to fire Alan Klein the next week after he's gone over all that paperwork. Um, But he never gets to do that, unfortunately. People try and draw connections to this in reference to Sam's murder, but this was just another thing going on in Sam's life that was compounding leading up to it. Agreed, because Alan Klein had nothing to do with the two women involved in the event. No. And you can't, you're you're really grasping at straws if, when you try and link them. Absolutely. Did it benefit? Did it benefit Alan Klein that Sam died the moments before he was going to tell him hey you're fired and you don't own any of my music anymore and start some crazy legal battle that he would probably actually win though because you know white america yeah it definitely is not connected to the murder it's just another shitty thing that was happening to him he had the death of his son he had his company stolen and he's also you know been wearing himself out on tour through it all so he's in la and he's acting somewhat strange, as noted by a friend, Jerry Brandt, uh, his booking agent at the time. And Sam's like flashing a wad of money around and, you know, having a couple of martinis. And he starts talking to this woman at the bar. And uh, Jerry and everyone else that he was with eventually leave Sam with Elisa Boyer, who later goes on to say that she was kidnapped by Sam at the bar and brought back to his motel where she then asks him to take her home. She ends up escaping while he's in the shower with her clothes um, and takes Sam's pants and clothes along as well. And now naked Sam is running around the motel, bangs on an office door, asking where Elisa is. And the motel's manager, Bertha Franklin, claimed to have shot him in self-defense 
And with that, Sam Cook says some of his last words, quote, Lady, you shot me. The death is met with wide suspicion. As Elisa is giving her testimony, uh, watching this footage is crazy because you can see people just like shaking their heads in disbelief at this outlandish, you know, seemingly outlandish story that Elisa is given uh, that Sam Cooke would never do anything nor deserve a fate like this. The coroner ruled it as justifiable homicide. Bertha Franklin received numerous threats and sued the Cook estate which ruled in her favor again and awarded her $30,000 in damages. Sam Cook is buried in the Garden of Honor at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California. And I remember uh, I was listening to this other podcast. I'll link it in our show notes, which you should check out at fatalfortunes.com. Um, that, you know, when the police were responding to the incident, they... They were like, you know, just another dead Negro. None of them realized, oh, this is world famous celebrity Sam Cooke. So that's part of why the crime scene gets contaminated. It doesn't get fully investigated. You know, she also beats him with a broom, which part of me is like, how? How is that self-defense? How is that self-defense? I mean, I guess any naked person running up on me is weird. And I would feel very threatened. But you have a gun. Like, you don't need to shoot the gun. (laughs) You just, you you have the gun. Raised a lot of questions about, like, the validity of both stories. Because as you said, yeah, the the cops had no idea who this was. They were very confused as to why they were getting calls from London about, like, Sam Cook's death. They're like, who is Sam Cook? (laughs) They had no idea. Uh. And I'm not going to include it here, but if you guys go listen to that other podcast, they have some really good audio, some really good profane audio about exactly what Nathan's talking about. And it is a very comical. Sounds like a Richard Pryor sketch or something. Cook is given two funeral services, one in Chicago at A.R. Leak Funeral Home, where 200,000 fans attended, and the other in L.A. at the Mount Sinai Baptist Church, where Ray Charles performed The Angels Keep Watching Over Me. Immediately following his death, two singles are released, Shake, which was a cha-cha-based song, and the more well-known A Change is going to come. The latter of those went on to inspire and stand as the protest song during the civil rights movement. Inspired in part by a racist encounter Cook had in a Louisiana hotel, uh, both of these singles are released on his first posthumous album, Shake, which ended up going to the number one spot on the R&B charts. His second posthumous release was live at the Harlem Square Club, 1963, and this was released in 1985. So, yeah, almost two decades after his death. It was going to be released during his life, but the label thought that the sound would mess up his pop image because of its gritty sound. I think we know what gritty is code for. As a side note, this does connect to another conspiracy for his death is possible involvement with the U.S. government. Black leaders who were strategically killed by our country is happening quite a lot in the 60s. So many speculate that Cook's well-known friendship with Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, uh, did put him on some kind of list. On top of that, this yeah gritty sound is getting him a huge audience, which brings with it a huge opportunity to influence. So it is no wonder that people believe this very tragic murder of Sam Cooke may have been at the hands of the government. Sam had the audience in the palm of his hand 
1963 during that recording. And in 2012, Rolling Stone named this live album the 439th best album of all time. It is also among the 1,001 albums you must listen to before you die. In 1978, Paul Mooney played Sam in the Buddy Holly story, who is a great idea for a future fatal fortune. The stage play One Night in Miami was performed in 2013 at the Rogue Machine Theater in Los Angeles, and it won three LA Drama Critics Circle Awards and four NAACP Theater Awards. The play was adapted into a movie directed by Queen of All Queens, Regina King, where Leslie Odom Jr. played Sam, the guy who is in a Hamilton and it premiered at the Venice Film Festival. And if you want to watch it, you know, it is live on Amazon Prime. And it's it's a pretty cool story. It does tells the story of a couple of different figures who are really prominent at that area. It's not a, just a, a Sam Cooke story. And I also saw something really crazy that when they performed it in London for the first time, all the actors were English except for one who they got permission to have be American from a cultural exchange program. Because I kind of take issue with so many English people playing our American black people from history. I take issue with that. So I'm glad we at least have a cultural exchange that um, acknowledges that. Who do you think should play him next? I mean, not having seen One Night in Miami, I feel like Leslie Odom Jr. is a pretty great choice because it's a person who, you know, since that's based off a play, knows how to act like that. Um, knows how to sing too. So I don't really know. I, I, you know, I'm definitely biased as someone who considers themselves a musician. I would want someone who can sing. So, I mean, if Leon Bridges has acting chops, like, I think that he could definitely do a pretty good Sam Cooke. What do you think? I see that. Yeah, I see that. I like your choice of Leon Bridges, but I could also see, you know, like a young Ving Rames or something playing him. I'm really huh. looking at, you know, that wide face with wide set features, mm-hmm. which is why I don't, because, you know, I like to see Michael B. Jordan in anything. Oh, sure. But I don't think he looks enough like the actual person. Same with Leslie Odom Jr. Yeah, but either one of the, I mean, like Ving Rames or M- Michael B. Jordan, either one of them, if they played him and then you found out that they could actually sing like incredibly that that would take or a what we had mentioned in our selena episode is that no matter how many times they do an adaptation of selena's life they use selena's actual music mm-hmm. they never mm-hmm. have the singer re-record it because her songs are just so timeless and iconic that i think that they're afraid of the backlash well guys thank you so much for tuning into another episode of fatal fortunes that's nathan that's al Remember to follow us on social media. You can find us on Patreon at Fatal Fortunes Podcast and on Instagram at Fatal Fortunes. For show notes and sources, please check out our website, fatalfortunes.com, where we have fun blog posts, stuff that you won't see here. And please check out our friend Mike Bash on Showtime Shameless and on Tyler Perry's The Oval. Also, guys, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. It brings me very much joy when we get a new subscriber on YouTube. And it also brings me joy that someone's watching the video version of us that I think, you know, I brush my hair to be here. True. Me too. <laughs> For all of you listening on the podcast, Nathan doesn't have hair. I am uh, almost bald. That was a joke. <laughs> that was a, that was a yoke. On Tuesdays, we talk ghosts. See you next time. <laughs>